1: Hello, I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief, and I'm joined by my co-host Alice Su, our senior China correspondent based in Taipei.
0: Very deep in the mountains of Sichuan, alongside a treacherous river, lies Pan It's a city that for years was too secret to appear on maps.
1: Pan was a key stronghold in Mao Zedong's third front, a covert plan to hide core industries inland in case America or the Soviet Union attacked.
0: This week, we're taking you to Pan to look at China's last giant experiment in self-reliance. We'll ask what lessons it has for a China that seems to be turning inwards again today.
1: This is Drumtap.
0: From The Economist. Hi Alice, welcome back. Hi, David. It's good to be here.
1: I hear you've been riding a Chinese-made high-speed train, but somewhere abroad. Is that right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So I've just been on a reporting trip to an undisclosed location that our listeners will find out about in a coming episode. But you're absolutely right. I was on a Chinese-made train. It was part of a reporting trip I was on to learn about the Belt and Road. I'm currently working on a story about that and excited to tell you all about it on Drum Tower, but not this week.
1: I've also been taking a Chinese high-speed train. It's one of my favourite things to do.
0: Oh, and it also usually makes for very good episodes. So I am excited to hear about it. Tell me, David, how did you decide where to go?
1: So I was in a bookshop a couple of months ago, and I was looking at the China shelves, which is a thing that we like to do. And my attention was caught by a book called Mao's Third Front, The Militarization of Cold War China. That's by an American scholar called Koval Meskins about a vast but not much discussed campaign from the Mao era.
0: Oh, the Third Front. You know, like I studied Chinese history in school, but it was only when I was working as a journalist that at one point I came across something referring to the Third Front. And I was like, oh, wait, what is this? And it's this point where Mao Zedong, the leader of China, decided that all of Chinese industry had to be moved inland all the way down to Western and to Southwestern China at immense cost because he was paranoid that China was going to be attacked. And he decided that everything had to be moved in order to keep it safe.
1: That's right. Reading this book, which I thoroughly recommend, made me think about China today because China's economy is slowing and the international situation, although clearly very different from the 1960s, is growing more tense, is growing more confrontational. And there is a lot of work that goes into trying to guess what Xi Jinping and the party's highest priorities really are.
0: Right, and that's something we've discussed quite a few times here on Drum Tower. For a long time, the Communist Party's claim to legitimacy was that it was delivering ever-rising material prosperity, right? It was constantly making people's lives better. But now we've been wondering if there is a shift under Xi Jinping where Xi focuses more on building a sort of fortress China where he is prioritizing security and self-reliance in a dangerous world.
1: Exactly. And the third front back in the 1960s was the last time that China devoted all sort of national efforts to self-reliance. And it was a huge project. It involved over 15 million people.
0: And it's amazing that Mao managed to hide entire cities and keep them secret.
1: That's right. And I went to one of those formerly secret cities, to Panjahua. It was a really central, important project to Mao. It's right in the south of Sichuan. It was where he decided that a steelworks should rise from nowhere so that vital supplies of steel would be safe in case of enemy invasion.
0: Wow. And, you know, of course, he did all of this out of a fear that the USA or the USSR were going to invade, and they didn't.
1: Exactly. Everything was about national security and calculations about economic self-interest and the costs went out of the window.
0: And that sounds quite familiar, because it is a little bit like how Xi Jinping is shifting national priorities now.
1: From pure growth to a focus on security. That's right. And look, to be clear, we're not saying that she is some carbon copy of Chairman Mao. We're not saying that today's China is heading straight back to the 1960s. But I went to Panjawa because it shows arguments about China's economic self-interest are fragile and that the top priority for the party throughout its history has always been about survival and national security and making China safe in times of danger. So I travelled to Panjahua. I took the Kunming to Chengdu rail line, which was also a third-front project.
0: Amazing. I imagine it's been upgraded since the time of the Third Front.
1: It's a really extraordinary line. I mean, you just go through tunnel after tunnel after tunnel with these kind of glimpses of steep ravines between them.
0: Oh, wow, I can hear that kind of echoey, rushing sound of the train going right through the tunnels.
1: In total, the line goes through mountains 427 times. It crosses rivers 80 times.
0: That must have required a huge amount of work for the people who were digging those tunnels.
1: Worse than that, it is estimated that for every kilometre of track, two people died. These people were poorly fed, living in tents, living in terrible conditions. And party cadres talked about how you had to use Mao slogans and propaganda to militarise their minds.
0: And what is really amazing to me is that people didn't know what was happening in the Third Front. So there was this huge, massive movement of people inland, right? And even at that time, people knew we're going somewhere, we're going to this Third Front, but they didn't know what was actually happening in those inland, newly built cities.
1: That's right. And if you're looking at what the Third Front teaches us about the party's priorities, the book's author, Koval Meskins he dives into these formerly secret archives and he shows really brilliantly that Mao was openly willing to sacrifice material prosperity and a lot of human lives and was not even always rational. You saw like shipbuilding plants thousands of miles from the seas. They had to transport giant pieces of boat up and down rivers. They built power stations underground and then had to pipe the smoke out through tunnels so they wouldn't be spotted by enemy aircraft.
0: So you're taking this train and basically it's built on the backs and on the blood of all these people, all these workers, many of whom sacrificed their lives.
1: That's right. It's now this, you know, it's a gleaming, air-conditioned, smooth as silk, Chinese high-speed train. But even when it was first built and it was being pulled by steam trains, it was a giant improvement because when Pandrahua was being constructed, initially you had to take a three-day journey from Kunming on these old liberation trucks. They were so packed that people were jammed together, standing for the whole way, falling asleep, standing up. And you had trucks falling off cliffs and people dying. And then the line was built. And actually, it was all a package. The Panjahua and this railway line were all a vital part of Mao's Third Front.
0: The Third Front was really this incredibly massive project with all of these people, all of this work. And yet it's not something that is often talked about today. And maybe part of the reason for that is because it was so secretive at the time.
1: That's right. And there were no model workers from the Third Front. There were no kind of enormous people's daily spreads about the glories of the Third Front because it was a state secret.
0: So, I mean, David, how did they manage to keep all of this secret?
1: Look, it was a very different China. And just as the Soviet Union had secret cities and North Korea still has secret mountain nuclear sites, this was a totalitarian state. And once you went to Panjahua, if you got out, it was once a year. And people actually paid extra money for keeping state secrets, so a Fei. This was a serious business, and you would be in very serious trouble if you opened your mouth.
0: So at the time, how did they get all these people to go there?
1: They were basically sent there. And if you refused to go, you could be stripped of your party membership. And you had to be politically reliable to be sent there. Mexicans has this great story about a student from one of the best universities in China, Peking University, Beida, being told he was going to Panjahua and then asking to see it on a map. And the recruiter couldn't show him because it was too secret to be on any map.
0: Wow. It's a little bit scary, but also quite intriguing, right?
1: That's right. And people actually were pretty excited about going there because they felt they were going to a war front. And I think in its earliest days, it must have felt more like a guerrilla camp than a city. And that's kind of fitting because Mao was actually inspired by the way that the Red Army survived way back in its first revolutionary days by taking to the tops of mountains when stronger enemies were too close. And he wanted to reproduce that idea of a tactical retreat. And at Panjahua, when the first arrivals were kind of surveying the site, they were finding that there were no livestock, the local farmers. They didn't keep animals because they'd be eaten by wolves. You couldn't wash in the river that goes through Panjahua because it was too fast and dangerous. And in fact, even once it got going, there's stories of vice ministers arriving from Beijing and being scared to cross the river because the little boats they were using kept overturning and drowning everyone on board.
0: So at what time did ordinary people in China find out what was really happening?
1: So actually, the first time that the Third Front was even mentioned in the People's Daily, the flagship party newspaper, was in 1978. And it was this passing reference to someone who had been a Third Front veteran.
0: Huh. And it was just a passing reference. So do people read it and think like, he's a veteran of what? What did he do there?
1: What's interesting is that by 78, actually, the peak of the Third Front was well past because it began in 1964, this time of extreme paranoia. And it wound down quite a bit after Nixon visited China in 1972. And that first meeting between an American president and a Chinese communist leader really sort of eased the tensions. And by the time the third front was basically being dismantled, America was actually sharing intelligence and military cooperation with China in a sort of pact against the Soviet Union. So history moved on and the third front ended up becoming irrelevant.
0: Because they also realized that the US was not going to attack China and its industry.
1: And it's really interesting that it's not a source of shame for the party, but it's not much talked about. And actually, I looked for Xi Jinping. Talking about the Third Front in speeches, and you can't find a big Xi Jinping speech about this period.
0: Although there was a documentary that ran on CCTV in 2017 about the Third Front, and it was part of this show they have called Memory of a
2: Nation.
0: So that very dramatic intro is saying that in a time of great international instability, Mao Zedong embarked on a grand plan to completely, fundamentally alter China's industrial policy. And these days, when Chinese state TV or Chinese media talk about the third front, they're usually using it to discuss how Chinese people were so ready to sacrifice themselves for a greater cause. It's used as an example of what China can achieve when it needs to, basically like putting your head down, like you can accomplish great, you know, extraordinary things, but generally they don't tend to dwell on whether the costs were worth it or not. And one example of those costs is that rail line that you were on, David, and all the people who sacrifice themselves for it.
1: Exactly, so after two and a half hours on the train up from Kunming in the next door province, I got to the Pandruhua
0: station. And what did you find when you got off the train? The Panjahua is not
1: an enormous city by Chinese standards. The core of the city is fewer than a million people, but it's in this really dramatic setting. You've got this very, very fast flowing dark brown river with these barren brown mountains rising to either side. And the city has basically been built on terraces cut into the mountain slopes. So it's kind of like a mini, mini version of Chongqing. And you have this giant steel mill that is still dominating one side of the river, and this faint tang of engine oil in the air wherever you go, because the steel mill is still working.
0: Huh. And how does that compare to the Panjinhua that you read about in the book?
1: Well, the very beginnings of Panjinhua were so unbelievably brutal. For several years, people lived in canvas tents in all weathers. They cooked on cooking pots, balanced on rocks. They ate coarse grain and pickled vegetables. They never saw fresh food. There were outbreaks of disease from the pollution, from sort of untreated sewage. And now Pandrawha is kind of sleepy. It's still dominated by this state-owned silma that's actually been laying workers off in recent years, so it's not doing too well. It's got a really mild climate, so some newcomers are pensioners from up in the sort of frozen northeast of China who kind of rent flats there or buy apartments because it's a nice place to spend the winter. And it's got some nice parks and it's got this big museum to the Third Front, which is, I guess, their big claimed tourist fame.
0: Amazing. And is it one of those museums that a lot of party members have been visiting, like the ones that you've visited in a number of different provinces?
1: You don't get that feeling. It's pretty quiet. And, you know, that is partly because it's not an easy place to get to. But it hasn't had a visit from Xi Jinping, which is what really drives numbers. But I felt it was important to go to this place that was built as a secret city when they really feared attack, which didn't make economic sense, and see are there any lessons and echoes there? with how people are balancing economic growth and national security in Xi Jinping's China today.
0: And I hope you were able to meet some Pan locals who were able to talk about their own experience and whether they see resonance with what's happening now.
1: That was one of the best things about this place was that almost everyone you meet has a family connection to the Third Front. And I'll introduce you to some of those people in a moment. But first we wanted to remind listeners you can read more about China over on our website. Like our piece looking at the decline in Mandarin studies among Western college students. But you will need to be a subscriber. If you are, thank you. And if you're not, then Drumtower listeners can get a free 30-day digital subscription. You'll find more details at economist.com slash drum offer.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.
1: And that, of course, is a familiar sound to Drum Tower listeners. That is the <laughs> touching patriotic aria, Zhongguo," I Love You China. And that was actually playing from loudspeakers outside the Third Front Museum in Panjahua.
0: Mm, our... Faithful listeners might remember that this song also featured on the episode that you did with Sulin on patriotic education. Exactly. So David, tell me, what was that museum like? And what did it say about the Third Front? Was it described in the same way as in the book that you read?
1: I mean, it's a serious chunk of architecture. It's pretty big. It's about the whole Third Front, not just Pandrahoa. And what you heard was the loudspeakers actually attached to a replica railway station from the very first days of Pan Zhehua, and they have an old steam train, and that actually has a famous old slogan above the train, Shang which was this slogan you saw all over the Third Front of good people and good horses go to the Third Front, like only the best go to the Third Front.
0: Is that literally people and horses?
1: The slogan is literally, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay.
1: I think there were a lot of donkeys in reality, but that doesn't look as good on a on a <laughs> no. slogan. There's also a very large boulder, which has a Mao phrase carved on it, which he did say several times, which became famous, which is, until Pan Jihua is built, I will not sleep. And that was him trying to really put pressure on his lieutenants like Deng Xiaoping, Liu Shaoqi, and others to try and get them to build this steelworks in the mountains. And then you go into the first hall of this museum, and it really sets up the idea that This is something that sprang to life at a time of extraordinary global menace and danger. You have these giant black and white images of the Soviet leader Brezhnev. You have the Indian leader Nehru, because obviously China and India were at the time having quite tense border skirmishes. You have Lyndon Johnson, the American president. You have US troops with flamethrowers in Vietnam. And then there's Mao with his hands behind his back, looking up at this big map like a kind of military commander.
0: Wow, it really takes you right back.
1: Yeah, and look, China wasn't wrong. They were surrounded by people who meant them harm. And, you know, you even had Chiang Kai-shek, where you are in Taiwan, Alice, constantly pushing the Americans to give him permission to launch guerrilla raids. Mao was paranoid. He saw enemies at every turn, but there was a lot to be paranoid
0: about. And actually, when you look back at this time in the 1960s, when the Sino-Soviet split happened, you know, the Soviets left and they took a lot of their technology with them. And China also had this moment where they decided, you know what, even if we don't have the foreign tech, we're going to do it on our own through muscle power, through sheer willpower.
1: That's right. And sort of Maoist fervor. And in fact, when they were arguing about the Third Front and whether it was affordable or doable, Mao put pressure on his underlings saying things like, we'll build the third front with trains. If we don't have trains, we'll do it with trucks. And if we don't have trucks, we'll do it with donkeys.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is just such a classic Mao Zedong style way of talking. And there's this idea that Mao used to say a lot. He used to say, Ren Ding Sheng Tian, so man must conquer nature. It's very Mao, but in some ways, it's also very Chinese. Like, you know, this Chinese saying, Yu Gong Yi Shan? It's the story of this man who believed that he could move a mountain, but you learn it as a little kid. It's like through dedication. If you keep going day by day, if you just try hard enough and commit yourself to it, you can do anything. That's such a Theme of I think some bits of Chinese classical culture, but then also Mao era thinking that man can do anything if you just believe and follow the party.
1: And of course, the dark side of this is that that's not true, right? There are always trade-offs, there are always costs. And that was what was really on the minds of Mao's top left tenants, his underlings, people like Deng Xiaoping, people like Liu Shaqi, who we've heard about in previous episodes of Jum Tao. These are not liberals, these are not dissidents. They're loyal, hardline communists, but they did believe in maintaining the party's power by at least keeping people fed and clothed. They didn't want the public desperate. And so they, of course, were emerging from one of the greatest disasters of Maoism, which was the Great Leap Forward, where you would had such extraordinary suffering because of really radical mao policies, and they were trying to get the economy and the country back on track.
0: Yeah, and the Great Leap Forward, it was this time when, Mao decided that if we just believe enough in our ideology, we can change nature itself and we can produce these miracle yields of grain. And in the end, you know, it triggered a man-made famine and it killed tens of millions of people.
1: And that was the tragedy that was hanging over everything at the top of the Communist Party in these dangerous international times. And so when Mao starts talking about spending whatever it takes to move every armaments factory and steelworks in China thousands of miles inland to remote mountains that have nothing there. And that would also mean building railway lines to get stuff there, building new coal mines to feed those mills. They basically stalled. And so you see for several months, they say, what an excellent idea. But of course, maybe it shouldn't be quite as large as that. And Mao keeps pushing back. And then a world event happens in the Gulf of Tonkin that changed everything. Two U.S. destroyers, the Maddox and the Turner Joy, while on patrol in the Gulf of Tonkin, had been attacked by North Vietnamese PT boats.
0: Right. The Vietnam War starts and America shows up essentially on China's southern doorstep.
1: The incident, however, gave President Johnson enough cause to immediately order limited airstrikes against North Vietnam and thus escalate the war. And then it's very hard to argue in that inner sanctum of the Communist Party in Beijing that America isn't a threat. And you see, within days, all of the opposition to the Third Front falls away. And top officials who had been digging their heels in, going slow, suddenly start signing off on the construction of Panjiahua. They start banning all new construction in coastal cities. And Mao gets his way because when things get dangerous enough, then arguments about kind of economic growth and prosperity... They just fall away and the security hawks take over.
0: Hold on. So everything we've just gone through, you know, this kind of back and forth between Mao and his advisors, that wasn't all in the museum, was it?
1: No, the museum begins at chapter two. You go in and you've got the American GIs in Vietnam, the Soviet troops on the border of China, this dangerous world situation. And so out of his infinite wisdom, Chairman Mao, supported by the rest of the Communist Party, decides to build the Third Front.
0: Okay. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that this is not a current party pilgrimage site, but it is a museum to this bit of history. Who was there and what, what were they looking at? What were they thinking?
1: So it was not super crowded on the weekday that I went there, but the museum draws a really interesting crowd. And I talked to people who had personal links to that history. I met this very dapper gentleman from Guangdong down south with this little jaunty straw hat. He was 85 years old looks very good. I have to say, he tells me he runs every day. (laughs) Mm. And he was happy to talk. He did not want to be recorded, but he was happy to talk. And he said that he remembers comrades from his work unit getting sent to the Third Front. And they had to build steel mills and build tank factories far from the threat of attack because China could have been attacked.
0: Hmm. And what did he feel about the fact that there was no attack after that? Do you think that all of this work and sacrifice had been for nothing?
1: Well, fun enough, because I'm an awkward foreign journalist, I asked exactly that question <laughs> to my new friend from mm. Guangdong. Wasn't it basically a waste? Because there wasn't a war, right? And he said, well, we had to build in the mountains so the enemy planes couldn't see the steel mill. And when I said, well, the enemy never came, he said, well, that's because we were resisting so successfully that they did not dare.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So he's like, basically, if we hadn't done this, it would have happened.
1: He was on message.
0: Wow. How many workers actually went to Pan Hua during the Third Front?
1: So the official record is it's 370 something thousand workers were sent to the Pandora Steel and Coal Enterprises.
0: And did you meet any veterans of the Third Front itself? Because this guy, this was his comrades who had this experience, right?
1: Well, outside the museum, I ran into one of those workers. He had been a miner. He told me he was 75 years old, although I have to say he looked a lot older after a tough life down the mines. He was with his wife and with his adult daughter, and then actually towering over all of them, their teenage granddaughter, and he had been there in the third
0: front. So he was someone who was actually there in Panjianhua when it was a secret city during the third front.
1: That's right, and he told me how tough life was, and then his adult daughter explained how, as for those hundreds of thousands of other workers, it was also very isolated.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Wow, so you can hear that they're saying how when this woman's father was here working on the Third Front, his wife and child were back in their hometown. And then every year, he only had the chance to go home once a year to see them. And that
1: was something you heard again and again from people there. So this minor worked in Pandora from 1966 until he retired in 93. But so many middle-aged people, they would talk about how they arrived years after their fathers first turned up there to work. Mm. So many people in Pandora have some sort of family connection to the third front. And I went out at dusk one evening to the city park. Which is actually rather lovely. It's kind of steep slopes. It reminded a bit of the Hong Kong Botanical Gardens. And I heard music playing. And as you know, Alice, if you hear music near sunset in a Chinese park, that means you're probably not very far from some dancing grannies.
0: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It never fails. And did you find some dancing grannies?
1: There they were. There was a group of old women. Uh, They were actually still basically lighting a ton of anti-mosquito incense coils. When I turned up, they had the music already going because I have to say Pandrahua at dusk is a bitey place. But one of the women they told me had actually arrived in 1971. Uh, So that's really early on, just a year after the first iron came out of the steelworks. And they had been sent there basically by the army. And they talked about how they lived in tents and sheds made of straw mats.
2: Mm. 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 Mm.
1: And these veterans from the very first days of Panjirhua, they talked about how they were proud of it. They said it had this spirit, this tradition of hard work. And now they're proud of how the city has developed. And I guess that pride is not at all surprising.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of part of their family history, right? And they came and they made a lot of sacrifices. They worked hard for the nation and I'm sure their living standards have improved. And this is just the path their lives have taken. But David, I mean, I guess going back to the question of the third front, it makes sense that these people, they're proud of where they're from, but on a broader scale, were there any benefits to this kind of huge project
1: That's actually a subject of debate among historians, because at the end of the Third Front in the late 70s, most of the projects were closed down or moved somewhere else because they just were not viable. The book that I read, so the author of that, Koval Meskins, he says, you can make an argument that without these policies, wasteful though they were, China's interior would have been even poorer for much longer because it just wouldn't have been developed back then. And, you know, the museum certainly talks about it as a heroic opening up of China's interior. And certainly out in the streets of Panjouhua, when you talk to people with a family connection, they definitely see all those sacrifices as ultimately worthwhile.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of something I remember hearing a lot from people who lived through the Mao era, almost a kind of nostalgia. Even though we talk about all the traumatic and disastrous things that happened, a lot of Chinese people remember that at that time, like everybody was working together. Everyone was in this collective struggle. Everybody had a very clear, higher purpose. And it was really reassuring and inspiring to be working really hard for something that you truly believed in.
1: That was certainly something that I heard from a retired couple that I met walking in the city park, Ms. Lee and Mr. Xiao. Ms. Lee told me that her father arrived in Panjahua as a third front worker. And for years, just like that retired miner we heard from, her father had worked alone. And then she finally joined him in 1971.
0: Oh, and what was it like when she arrived? Well,
1: she was still a child, but she remembered it being pretty tough housing.
0: Wow, so it was quite a rough environment. I mean, did people want to leave at that time? She says no. Wow, okay, she says people at that time had a higher state of mind, like people were very pure and they didn't think about running away. It's referring to this way that people used to have real ideological faith in the Mao era. And actually, you know, that's something that I think Xi Jinping is really nostalgic for, right? It's something that he's trying to evoke today. And he's often talking about, like, don't forget the original intentions. Like, don't forget how we used to be in the early days when we were true believers in the party. And you can kind of see it in the way that he's always calling on young people in China to work hard and eat bitterness and basically Why can't you young people be like these people of the Mao era who were willing to sacrifice, to live in tents, to work their whole lives for the nation, for the party and for China?
1: And what's really interesting about that retired couple is that their own child has had a completely different modern day Chinese upbringing. He actually studied overseas in the US, now lives in Beijing, works in finance. So it's not as if they don't have contact with the full spectrum of 21st century middle-class life. But they told me that China, in their view, needs to be more self-reliant again. I mean, it's
0: amazing because what I hear is this couple, it's not like they are opposed to the more international middle class lifestyle that their child has. But it sounds like they think that China needs to be self-reliant because they don't completely trust the outside world. You hear them saying our country has to be self-reliant in terms of food because our country is so big. We have so many people and we can't rely on imports because what if one day someone outside wants to choke our neck, meaning, you know, cut us off. We still need to rely on ourselves. And that's why they think the third front spirit is important.
1: And if I can take you there, Alice, this was this really friendly retired couple. The husband's a little bit out of breath because we're walking up quite a steep track that winds its way up through this wooded path. There's lots of other old people doing their evening exercises. They're very happily chatting with a foreign journalist. And yet they're kind of describing this world of dangers and threats that means that China has to grow all of its own food. It was really disconcerting and fascinating.
0: And did you ask them why they think that and is it because of anything in particular in, from recent years?
1: Yeah, they think the world has changed and it's changed in the last few years. So, I think the in the years. So,
0: you can hear that he's a little bit awkward about it. I think he's trying to be polite with you because he says, oh, how do I say this? It's hard to say this. Uh, let's just say the international situation has changed from 10 years ago. So we need to adjust our policies. And I think probably what he's feeling awkward about saying openly is the US has become more hostile towards China and the Western world doesn't trust China anymore. And there are more foreign enemies.
1: Absolutely. And I think that gets to the crux of why this bit of history still matters. If you look at what America's approach to China is right now and the Western world, it it tries to do two things, right? One is to appeal to China's economic self-interest. So all of those Trump era tariffs on Chinese exports, Mm
0: -hmm, which, by the way, were kept in place by Joe Biden,
1: kept in place by Joe Biden. What are those tariffs? A tariff is basically an appeal to China and its economic self-interest. It's like a nudge. You know, if you change your ways, if you do things we'll like, then you'll have more free trade.
0: But that assumes that the party wants to have that trade so that it can keep having economic growth to stay in power.
1: Exactly. But at the same time as America is trying to use those economic nudges to change how China acts, you're seeing really tough export controls on things like semiconductors or high-tech investments. And that is because America has decided that China is a dangerous, threatening country and that allowing certain very, very advanced technologies to go to China at all is bad for national security. And that's basically about saying we are rivals, if not adversaries of each other, and we're in a world of threat.
0: Yeah, and so despite the US officials saying, you know, this is very narrowly targeted, it's only the security-related items, I think from the Chinese perspective, they just see it as you're trying to contain us, and this is driving all these calls from Xi Jinping for self-reliance. And what does Pan Zhihua teach us about all of this?
1: Well, Why does Panama exist? Why was this steel city built from scratch at such unbelievable cost in the middle of the mountains? Because at a certain moment, when the absolute consensus took hold at the top of the Communist Party that America really might invade and attack China and that this was no longer just a kind of rivalry, but these were enemies and adversaries, then all of the economic arguments about where's the most efficient place to build a steelworks, how should we spend our money for the good of the people, that all fell away. That was all peacetime thinking and suddenly everything was about national security and staying safe.
0: Okay, I see what you're saying. So Pan kind of embodies that decision to prioritize security and self-reliance. That's what it stands for, and that's what you think is happening now.
1: That's the danger, right? I think it's a place to contemplate the fragility of arguments that involve economic self-interest. Basically, if your comfort Is to say China will never really break with the West because ultimately they need us economically too much, there's too much money at stake. Pandorahua is a very good place to stand and see that actually when countries really feel threatened, certainly places run by the Chinese Communist Party, they will do what it takes at any cost.
0: Even if it's a huge economic sacrifice.
1: Now, Alice, I met a guy in the museum who was absolutely already there in his mind. It was really striking. He was Middle aged guy from Guangxi, way down south near the border with Vietnam. He'd brought his 12 year old son and his son's friend, who looked a little bored, but they went to the Third Front Museum because he wanted them to learn a really urgent lesson from history. And I have to say, when I talked to him, he was like a drum tower greatest hits because all the things he wanted to tell me about, I think we've looked at in previous episodes.
2: 都太安逸了
0: Hmm, Wow, so this dad is saying, basically, when you're in a time of comfort and peace, you should be thinking about danger and threats. And he says, our young people these days are living too comfortably, like they have no idea what it means to suffer. They don't know how the older generation got what we have today by sacrificing. And they just think that everything falls from the sky, like they take things for granted, and they need to learn about struggle.
1: And to help you picture the scene, Alice, I'm talking to this really friendly middle-aged guy and his son and son's friend in front of this life-size diorama of the entrance of a mine from the third front. And so that's why you can hear like these recordings of people hitting coal with shovels and carts being pushed around.
0: Mm -hmm. And basically he's like, my kids, they need to get this. Like this is the experience that they haven't had.
1: That's right. And in a way he'd come to Panjahua for the same reason that I had which is that he wants to study the idea of self-reliance in a time of
2: dangers. Yeah,
0: Okay, amazing. I see why you said that he is like a drum tower greatest hits because he is saying things here that are the same things we mentioned in our episode about agricultural policy. So he says Xi Jinping has said that we should hold the rice bowl in our own hands. And this is basically just an upgraded version of what comrade Mao Zedong previously said about self-reliance. And then he says, oh, and in China and a lot of places, we're trying to turn forests back into farmlands. He's talking about these exact policies about self-reliance, about agricultural self-sufficiency. I mean, it's really striking to just hear him casually throw out those slogans like that, because it really shows how they are ingrained in a lot of people's day-to-day thinking.
1: The party uses these slogans because they resonate with a lot of regular Chinese. They're real for lots of people. And that father from Guangxi, he is serious about how his son needs to learn about a dangerous world, because by the time his son grows up, there may
2: be a war. There you go. You know, he's saying
1: history is repeating itself continuously, and there's going to be a war when resources are scarce that's going to cause global upheaval. And... You can see why someone might feel that a threatening America that wants to contain China, which is after all what Xi Jinping says, is a reason to start doubting that trade and globalization, and open borders and supply chains that span continents. You can see why people might get nervous that that's not a safe way to organize your economy.
0: Yeah, they're definitely not thinking like, oh, if some kind of conflict happens, it's our government's fault and we're going to you know, go out, protest and stop them, or it's going to threaten our happy lives. They're just thinking if something happens, it's going to be chaotic. We need to start preparing now. We need to be prepared to eat bitterness and struggle. We need to tell our young people to get ready.
1: Now, Alice, I don't want to claim that every single person in this country of 1.4 billion is getting ready for war because... That would be wrong, inaccurate, and also just crazily alarmist. And this is a third front museum. So you are going to draw visitors who are interested in self-reliance. It's like, you know, you go to Gettysburg, you're going to meet people interested in the civil war. But I think it is a good place to ponder that trade-off between economic growth and security is very, very real for lots of Chinese people.
0: Well, David, I am really glad that you picked up that book and that it sparked this trip because it's also just given us a way to step back and think about what's happening in China today. And I guess it's a good comparison, although it's not a perfect one, right? Because there's definitely parallels in the ways that China is paranoid about being surrounded, about enemies, and in many ways, China is turning more inward. We see these new counter espionage laws. We see these restrictions on data. We see that China is becoming less transparent, and so it seems like there's some hiding. But I mean, if you want to look at Chinese industries, we're not seeing a Chinese industry going and hiding in the mountains. If anything, we're seeing Chinese industry going out still and being very much engaged with the rest of the world, and so. There are ways in which this is a, a helpful parallel, but there are also you know, big differences.
1: So, Alice, you're absolutely right that this is an imperfect echo from history. And one thing that's changed is I don't buy the argument that the Western world must not be tough on China because the West might disempower the moderates around Xi Jinping. I think there's actually tremendous unity at the top of the Communist Party. But I do worry about regular Chinese the hearts and minds of those 1.4 billion people, I think it is really important that Chinese people still want higher living standards. They want their kids to get good jobs, not grow up ready for war. Because as long as the Chinese people as a whole are still wanting peacetime economic prosperity, then that limits that sense that there's nothing to be lost from cutting China off to the world. And as soon as the whole country becomes convinced that it faces attack, then once there's a foreign enemy at your door, then what you want is a strong fortress, not a comfortable home. Thanks to everyone who's been letting us know where you are in the world when you listen to Drum Tower.
0: And so a big hello to Andrew, who listens during his commute through Riyadh, to Stephanie and her son Leo, who listen on the way to school in Miami, to the Chamberlains who listen while driving through the cane fields in North Queensland in Australia, and also in Australia are Jacob and Isabel. And they wrote to tell us that they were so inspired by our Slow Train Home episode from the Spring Festival that they are planning their own train journey through China. So Bon Voyage or ilu Shun Feng have a very good trip. Remember, if you want to get in touch with us, you can always email us at drum at Our
1: editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brand produced this episode. Sound design is by Tingley Lin, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. Our executive producers are Marguerite Howell and Jason Palmer.